Welcome to A Passion to Serve. My name is Don Kutnicki and I'm the host of the podcast. I've spent the majority of my professional career developing and implementing policies and programs to help break the vicious cycle of poverty that too many people endure. With A Passion to Serve, I bring you stories of individuals from all walks of life who are working towards similar goals and objectives. During our interviews, we discuss employment and training programs, Head Start services, financial literacy instruction, and so much more. And of course, I also speak to the people who are utilizing these programs to help create a better life for themselves and their families. I hope you decide to join me and learn about these amazing people who all have a passion to serve. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 21 of A Passion to Serve. Today, I'm speaking with Ruben Martinez, outgoing director of the Julian Samara Research Institute. Ruben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Don. My pleasure to be here this morning. Yeah, so I, I do know and I understand that you stepped down effective October 31st as director for JSRI or the Julian Samara Research Institute. I have a variety of questions that I want to ask you, but first and foremost, I want to thank you for the important work and the contributions that you've provided during these past years as director of JSRI, that the work that you've done has has benefited Latino communities throughout the Midwest nationally and definitely in the role that I have with farm workers, you play a very important role in your your conscience and your commitment to really making sure that we don't lose track of the important things I was always impressed with whenever I was working with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, I uh, stepped down October 31st and uh, November 1st was my first day as not as the non-director. Uh, I'm continuing with the Institute for another year and I'll be transitioning to uh, retirement. I'll be 70 years old when I leave, so I think uh, that's a good age to move on. Well, it's definitely well-deserved, definitely well-deserved. Can you tell me a little bit about the mission of the Julian Samarta Research Institute and what were some of your primary responsibilities as director? Sure, yeah. The mission of the Institute, uh, as articulated by uh, a previous uh, interim director was to generate new knowledge about the Latino communities uh, in Michigan, the Midwest, and across the country, and to uh, disseminate the knowledge and, where possible, to apply it uh, to improve the communities. That uh, was a mission that I uh, found when I got here. I really liked it. I think it's a very articulate, very clear, and very uh, much aligned with my own personal views. As the director, uh, my role was to, first of all, administer the affairs of the Institute, but also to uh, search out uh, opportunities for funding uh, for uh, our projects and to work with the community, making sure that they had voice in the kinds of projects that we were working on uh, and ensuring that the university resources were uh, being used uh, to reach those communities, depending on where they were located. Uh, and to seek to use knowledge to improve the well-being of these communities and, of course, the larger society. Did you? How did you become interested in this work? Was it a gradual process, or did you have a sense that this was a path or some type of a a, a passion that you had from an early on, or was it just 
like one one phase of your career led to another to another? I think uh, the 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 influence of the times. Uh, as I was growing up, you know, I was a teenager during the civil rights movement. Uh, I was very much engaged in trying to understand what was going on and what the issues were. Uh, after I got out of the military and went uh, to higher education, uh, I took an interest in uh, a lot of different disciplines. Uh, but sociology seemed to be the one that kind of resonated with me because it, it focused on issues and had fields that uh, very much interested me. This would be social stratification, and that is how is social inequality reproduced in society. Uh, and then I also took a look at uh, political sociology, which uh, focuses on the structures of power in society, how it is used. So those two fields combined for me uh, to give me a sense of how race relations uh, and those kinds of hierarchies reproduced in society. And political sociology gave me a sense of how uh, power is used to maintain and also how it can be used to change society for the better. So my uh, purpose, I think, in life has been to pursue uh, a greater and better society for us all. And that's where I was coming from. So it was something that I think in terms of over time, the depth of knowledge about these issues increased. But I think the passion for a better society was always there. The Julian Samarta Research Institute, I know it focuses on the needs of the Latin communities in the Midwest. Um, and I know there's also an emphasis on areas such as health disparities, entrepreneurship, and service delivery system gaps. Are there specific initiatives that really stand out to you that you have been involved with that you feel has made a difference? And also, what are some of those ongoing frustrations or um, just a lack of progress that you would hope to have seen throughout your career? Well, I think there's a lot of different uh, areas to focus on. You know, I, I like to say that the Institute tried to do for Latino communities in the uh, in Michigan, the Midwest, and across the nation, the same thing that higher education does for uh, white Americans as a whole, and that's to produce knowledge to try to improve things. Uh, there was a little bit of a difference between my own uh, personal research interests and those of the Institute. The Institute uh, is uh, oriented to the larger community, and so we uh, identified uh, three niche areas that we worked on. Uh, one of them was entrepreneurship. Uh, and another was the uh, gaps that exist between poly between uh, service delivery uh, programs and Latino communities and their needs, uh, and then also health disparities. Uh, in all of these, we try to emphasize policy dimensions uh, within each of the, the areas. My own interests have been uh, in. Uh, the education of minority students with a particular interest in, in Latinos, uh, in environmental justice issues, uh, which uh, also are very prevalent here in Michigan and across the country, uh, as well as uh, recovering the land ethics of Latino communities. There's a tendency to think that land ethics are basically those of um, ecological-oriented persons and Native Americans, but all peoples have land ethics. And, you know, in the southwest where I'm from, uh, we had been there for over 200 years before the Americans came in, uh, and so there had been some management practices that 
uh, I think, need to be covered uh, and which are quite different from those of uh, Americans themselves. So uh, there's a lot of issues to address. I mean, uh, one of the concerns that I have is that, you know, family white institutions like Michigan State University don't always understand their role vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Latino communities. They uh, are governed by a set of values and and uh, mission and vision for themselves uh, that I think go beyond the immediate needs of these communities. Uh, for example, you know, there's this, this great emphasis on ensuring that the reputation is maintained, that the that the, uh, standing of the university is improved vis-a-vis -vis other Big Ten universities and so on. But those are not the concerns and they are not the needs of Latino communities. So I think there's an important uh, uh, reassessment that needs to go on that uh, uploads those needs within the larger perspective of the university. And a land-grant institution is about uh, applying knowledge and making things better. Uh, and so I think uh, that needs to be made more central again uh, and make sure that uh, what we're really doing uh, is helping the communities where they are, not where we want to, to take them to vis-a-vis uh, -vis, you know, the institution's own, own perspectives. Will you continue to be involved in some of these different initiatives, whether it has to do with land take issues or with the role of institutions of, of higher education? Or do you feel like there's some other structures and groups that are carrying the baton on some of those issues? Well, I've tried to make sure that there are uh, processes going on in, in our communities uh, where people can uh, continue uh, to address some of these issues. We have created uh, uh, some nonprofits while I was here working with communities. We have, uh, you know, Mi Alma, which is uh, Michigan Alianza Latina para Mejoramiento y Avance, uh, which serves as an advocacy organization uh, for Latino issues, on Latino issues. Uh, one of the things that uh, that organization did was to uh, promote in-state tuition uh, rates for undocumented students who met the criteria that were established. Uh, there have been several other activities that they've been engaged in. We also uh, started the MALGE, which is the uh, Michigan uh, Alliance of Latino, Latinx in Higher Education, and that's to promote the higher education needs of the Latinx community across the state making sure that we are not left behind, but also making sure that institutions of higher education, particularly the public institutions, are able to transform themselves uh, as much as they can to be able to meet the needs of all uh, peoples here in the state. Uh, and then finally, uh, more recently, we've established the North Star Alliance for Justice, which is a, a uh, an organization that seeks to include uh, not only the marginalized populations in the state, uh, but all of those who are interested in having a more inclusive and equitable state. Uh, and they are, uh, you know, working uh, to bring about uh, alliances across the state that will allow us to have greater influence uh, in terms of the vision that uh, we want for, for Michigan, not just one that's uh, uh, defined by the dominant group, but one that includes the voices and the needs of these communities that have been marginalized for so long. 
Are there key objectives or principles? Like, can you condense the the work that you've done or you've helped establish with some of those nonprofits? Are there key principles that really highlight or that would make a substantial change in terms of creating uh, social justice and more access to the broader population? I think it's about uh, recognizing that we're all in this together that we cannot continue with hierarchical orders that uh, limit uh, the human possibilities for some populations and not others. Uh, that uh, as long as we have the hierarchical order uh, where one group dominates the others, that that is not going to move uh, human civilization forward. In fact, if we look at what's happening today, uh, much of the barrier to progress is by segments of white Americans who are holding up civilization by, uh, you know, restoring an emphasis on racism and, you know, just promoting anti-democratic principles and so on. Uh, I think it's important uh, to recognize that today in this kind of context, uh, uh, everybody needs to stand up for democracy, to stand up for truth. We're currently in a period that I call an epistemic crisis in which some people cannot tell the difference between fact and fiction, and facts are, you know, being undermined. Uh, we had Giuliani say that truth is not truth, which, you know, I really don't understand what that means, because if you're talking about truth, it has to be truth. It cannot be done truth. So he doesn't even make that distinction. But we have, you know, we live in a historical moment in which the future of this country is bound up uh, with the future of Latinos, with African Americans, Native Americans, white Americans, and so on. We just need to have a broader vision uh, of where we want this country to go and where we want humanity to go. Right now, we are, you know, uh, we have a social order uh, based on radical individualism, anti-government, uh, and uh, anti-labor that is destroying this country. And we need to make sure that uh, uh, those practices and those values do not destroy the planet. We need to remember that the planet doesn't need humans. It will go on without us. Uh, and, you know, if we want the, to survive in terms of humanity, we need to make sure we take care of the, of the planet first uh, and that we are making sure that it is sustainable. So there's a lot of big issues here. Uh, and, right, you know, right. It's multi-layered. Well, what's interesting to me with this, as disheartening as, as this is, I would think that your interest in – and sociological perspectives and different things that are happening in our culture. I've always felt that history has a tendency to repeat itself for the good or for the bad. Are you surprised where we find ourselves or did you see benchmarks or, or uh, you know, things that were taking a place along this path that got us to this place where it's becoming increasingly difficult to have a difference of opinion and remain civil it's really unfortunate where we find ourselves, but I'm wondering, you know, from a big picture perspective, um, did you did you see anything like this happening in our country? Not that it's specific to the United States either. I was not super surprised. I, I think what is surprising is how intense uh, the the polarization is, the how intense the sentiments are, uh, but. You know, there was a sociologist back in uh, the 20s and 30s by the name of Robert Park. I think he was in Chicago. Uh, and when he did his work on, on race relations, he basically talked about a cycle in which we would move forward, 
a couple of steps and then maybe move back uh, a step and then move forward again a couple of more steps. So this cycle uh, is one where uh, you're moving forward, moving backwards, but ultimately progressing overall. So uh, from my point of view, I kind of see this as kind of one of those steps backwards. Uh, and there's a broader perspective that uh, you know, the person who was one of the early sociologists talked about uh, the the cognitive understanding of humans or the perspectives uh, that they have uh, about their place in the world, uh, moving from what he would call uh, superstitious uh, phases to more scientific phases and so forth. Uh, I kind of combine those two perspectives to say, well, you know, if we can move forward in race relations, we can always also move forward uh, and or rather backward uh, from science back to superstitious beliefs and so on. So what we find today, I think, is an epistemic crisis where people need to really give up beliefs that are not grounded in verifiable knowledge and move toward verifiable knowledge. So, you know, this anti-vax and all that kind of stuff is just based on passion and beliefs. It's not based on deep understanding of what is going on. It's based on shallow notions of freedom. Uh, and so it's, it's very critical that people, uh, you know, get grounded <laughs> in terms of, 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 of real knowledge about the world. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm glad to hear that you know, that this is just a cycle and a process that we are probably going through because it's just been so disheartening for so many of us. And and ultimately, I, I, I tend to agree, too. I think we will find ourselves one way or the other. We will find our way through this. And I'm hoping that we will be better off as a country as we get through it. Going back to your work with the Julian Samarta Research Institute, you did some very important work with the dairy industry here, not only in the state of Michigan, but in other Midwest states. And I'm wondering if you could just provide a little bit of general in overview and information as to what you were doing in that field. Sure. But before I say that, let me also say, getting back to the previous uh, comment that we were talking about, this previous topic, and that is the anti-government dimension of the current social order, I think, has gotten out of control. It really started with corporations not wanting to be regulated and not wanting to, and the wealthy not wanting to redistribute some of their uh, uh, profits to, to people in need and so on. Uh, but that has taken on a life of its own to the point that uh, people have become anarchists and uh, right. now really are completely, you know, out of control when it comes to government. And I think even those the wealthy know that they've lost control of it. Uh, so that, that I think, is one of the dangerous uh, places that we've gotten to. But in terms of the dairy industry, yes, I work with some colleagues over in, in veterinary medicine. Uh, the aim started with uh, how to uh, reduce the incidence of mastitis in dairy cows, that is a, a bacterial infection of the udder, which uh, is uh, leads to uh, certain amounts of it in milk. It's measured in terms of somatic cell counts. And so what we were trying to do was to reduce the incidence of mastitis in, in, in the dairy farms here in Michigan and Pennsylvania and Florida. Uh, and our role was really to do the evaluation of the project and to contribute. It was really uh, an exciting project for us. Uh, because it brought uh, what I would call medical research, at least uh, veterinary medicine uh, and research, uh, together with sociological ideas. And, you know, this is something that uh, a scholar by the name of C.P. 
P. Snow, C. P. being initials, uh, who wrote about two cultures many years ago and talked about how the uh, the sciences and the the humanities needed to work together. This wasn't quite exactly the humanities working with with medical research, but it's certainly crossing the lines uh, to work together. Uh, and one of the things that we found uh, that was new for me, what because I didn't really uh, hadn't studied dairies previously, uh, was that the majority of milkers uh, are Latinos. There had been a transition in the dairy industry from what I would call family farms to family corporate farms to large corporations. And as you go from, that in, you know, progress along that transition, what you find is that the corporations are now engaged in hiring labor as opposed to the family farms who basically uh, would hire uh, family members or, you know, local neighbor kids and so on to do the work. It was They weren't huge farms in the sense that, uh, you know, you would have 2,000, 3,000 cows that need to be milked every day, right? The family farms had maybe anywhere from 50 to 100 to 300 cows. Uh, now we have these large-scale corporate uh, dairy farms of, you know, some of them I, that I found and learned about had like 8,000 cows, right? Uh, they might have them at three sites, but it's still one farm, if you will, uh, with three sites and, uh, and, and so on. But so in that transition, there were some, some practices that were altered and needed to be restored, needed to be recovered. One of them was, you know, the... The, the dairy farmer takes real pride in their product. They understand uh, that they that the, they want to uh, sell quality milk uh, and so on. Once you get to the corporate side, what you find is that there's more of an interest in kind of pushing uh, the product as fast as you can. And the ones who are most familiar with what's going on in terms of the health of the cow are the milkers. These are Latinos, many of them are undocumented, uh, and the, the corporate uh, firm really had not developed the capacity to work with uh, hired labor on a dairy farm. So there were a lot of issues there, there were a lot of language issues, there were uh, what we would call human resource issues and so forth. And so we we were able, from a sociological point of view, with a greater emphasis on and on on organizations, uh, and not so much on the on the treatment of mastitis, which we left to the vets, uh, is to help them understand what was happening in that transition and what needed to happen uh, to reduce the turnover, to reduce the um, lack of uh, effective communication with the workers, and so on. Uh, and I introduced to them the notion of cultural lag, which we find in sociology. Um, particularly with regard to technology. This was a, uh, a concept that was developed, I think, in the 50s by William Ogburn, uh, who talked about how technology advances faster than culture can, can assimilate it, and that he called a cultural lag. Well, we took that same concept and applied it to the dairies and, uh, and said, well, there's a cultural lag here. Uh, there's been a transition from one type of uh, a farm that that has moved from family workers to hired labor, uh, but the human resource side has not been developed, uh, and so those issues needed to be addressed. Um, and there were other issues, but that, in a nutshell, kind of gives you the big big picture of it. Well, I re you know, I, I lament the loss of a lot of our family farms, but I, I think policy and everything has been set up 
more geared towards benefiting larger, more corporate farms. At least that's my perspective of it. I don't know if you feel that way or not. It's been a, it's been a very interesting initiative that you've been involved with. And one of the thoughts I was having as you were going through and discussing cultural leg and some of the things that are going on here within the dairy industry, as we both know, the H2A visa program has really exploded in the state of Michigan and in, and in many other states. And for those who may not be under, who may not know about the H2A visa program, it's an opportunity to bring in workers for a set period of time to do agricultural work and um, growers like it for a variety of reasons. The most important one is it gives them a sense of stability and knowing that there's going to be a workforce available for them, but there are a lot of other issues that go along with that. In your opinion, Ruben, is there a place or do you think there's going to be a need for the H2A workforce in the dairy industry? Well, you know, these are always uh, multi-layered uh, circumstances in which we find ourselves. Uh, we have the NAFTAs and the CAFTAs and so forth, which have led to the displacement of workers uh, and, and growers, small growers in, in, in other uh, communities. Uh, we've had the United States involved in the economies and transforming the economies of Central American countries and so forth uh, to what we once knew as uh, banana republics and so on. And then there were civil wars, you know, when we left, uh, and there were dictators that were sustained and supported by the U.S. and so on. And so, you know, in, in the wake of our departure, there were there was chaos and, and migration of populations. So uh, that has an impact on what is going on here. So a lot of those workers come uh uh, without documentation because they're trying to make a living and, you know, we don't have a system of immigration that really allows them to, to get processed in a timely fashion. But we also have, uh, you know, the H2A program, which you say is, uh, you know, brings, bring, allows these growers and producers to, to bring in, uh, workers, guest workers, if you will, uh, for temporary periods and, and to send them back. So the, this is not the first guest worker program that the United States have had. I think we started back in 1917. Uh, the biggest one was the Bracero program, which was established in 1942 as a result of labor shortages due to the war. Uh, and then that was kept in place. Uh, those workers, I think, were, were greatly exploited. In fact, in Texas, at one point, Mexico refused to send workers to Texas because they were treated so badly. Uh, and so, unfortunately, not everyone is uh, as concerned with the well-being of workers as others. I'm not saying that everybody does that, but I'm saying that there are some some exploitation, uh, some degree of exploitation that goes on. The other thing that happened too, and now that in the pandemic, you'll see that there has been a bit of a resurgence uh, in, in workers having an interest in labor unions. Well, we live in that social order which is anti-labor, and particularly anti-labor union, uh, and in you know the the success of Cesar Chavez in organizing farm workers in California uh, was due to the work of his predecessor, which was uh, uh, a scholar uh, who had come as a result of the Mexican Civil War uh, and so on. And uh, he began to take on the, the organizing efforts of farm workers back in the, you know, there was a lot of organizing efforts in the 30s during the Depression and so on. Uh, but Ernesto Galarza took on the task in the 40s and 50s, became the nemesis of a little-known senator by the name of uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon. And uh, 
he found out that he could not organize farm workers because the, the, the guest workers that were coming in through the Bracero program were being used as strike breakers. So I think as we move forward with H-2A workers, we need to make sure that first that the law is, is, is complied with, that these growers are in fact giving domestic workers the first opportunity to work. And secondly, that if there are ever any farm organizing efforts or farm work organizing efforts that these guest workers are not used as strike breakers. So there's a lot of complicated issues to talk about here, but I do agree that uh, producers are food systems. They do need a stable labor force. The thing that we have to do is to recognize the importance of these workers and create the terms and conditions of employment that benefit them, that benefit the producers and benefit the farms, uh, the uh, food systems uh, that get food on our tables. One of the primary concerns that I've, I've had recently with the H2A program is the utilization of crew leaders. And crew leaders are individuals who will have a crew of workers. They'll go to maybe one grower or multiple growers and say, I have X numbers of workers here to harvest your crops or whatever, whatever type of work is available and they are primarily responsible, they'll pay the workers, they have supervisory responsibility and authority. And when I initially started working in this industry, I realized that with some growers, they would use that as an opportunity not to be held accountable, that if there are any issues, labor-related issues, go see the crew leader, which could be extremely difficult because they're on the move and there isn't a whole lot of consequences in place to start with. And we're starting to see that with the H2A visa program as well, that we're seeing more and more crew leaders who are signing up, who are bringing in that H2A workforce. And it seems like we're bumping up, uh, up bumping up against that again, Ruben, where there's that lack of accountability for the workforce that are coming in. So not only do we want to ensure that the domestic labor pool is first and foremost the priority, but we want to make sure that those H2A workers are being treated equitably and that there is a certain amount of consequences for poor behavior. Absolutely. Um, there's little question that, you know, it's a rational decision on the part of growers to go ahead and transfer that responsibility over to a third party who's willing to take on that responsibility. What we have, the problem that we have is a structural problem. You know, the anti-government uh, movement that started with Reagan and the people who got Reagan into office uh, really uh, were focused on what they called smart, small government. They wanted small government so that uh, corporations would not be regulated, would not have, there would be small government that could not enforce laws and so forth. And so one of the problems that we have here is that the, 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 the government has been reduced. The Department of Labor has been reduced. They've been trying to reduce the Census uh, Bureau and all of that kind of stuff. So the question I would ask is, does the Department of Labor really have the resources to be able to effectively enforce the compliance when we look at this area of uh, the food systems? It's important that, uh, that you know, law be enforced. But in order for a lot to be enforced, the, the resources have to be there in terms of the, uh, the government agencies responsible for it. Uh, so I think that's what's giving, you know, or, uh, or providing a window for the kinds of issues that you're raising where people are just getting away with things. I mean, uh, you, you cannot take 
a group of H2A workers from one farm uh, to another unless you have gotten prior approval. Yes, you can do it if you get prior approval, but what you're saying is that, in my understanding of, of what's going on out there, is that they're not getting prior approval. And so enforcement is a big issue. Uh, we just need to be able to restore a level of resources to the Department of Labor so that we are able to actually enforce compliance. And sometimes, depending on the role that individuals have within the Department of Labor, there's a really challenging balancing act where they want to help and meet the needs of the employer community, but yet still ensuring that the workforce is being treated equitably. And sometimes those two those two desires work against each other or seemingly work against each other. Yes, you know, in sociology, those who study the state – uh, argue that the state is the arena in which competing interests are resolved. So these uh, employees of the Department of Labor, they do have a balancing act uh, to, uh, to, to, to deal with, but ultimately they're supposed to be neutral and they're supposed to be looking out for the common good and what is best for the nation. Uh, and so they should not let their personal interests, their personal ties, uh, and their personal biases uh, enter into the way that they address the the issues that arise in this sector. I agree. So I'm going to transition to the Julian Smarter Research Institute via, via official newsletter, which is Nexo. And I, if I'm not mistaken, the new director, that gentleman's name is Sam Stanley, and it looks like he has a real passion for um, initiatives as they relate to inclusion and equity. And I'm wondering if you could tell me anything about the incoming director. Okay, so uh, Sam Stanley is the president of Michigan State University. He's been there now, I think, oh. he just finished his second year. Uh, and so he launched a diversity uh, planning process and a strategic planning process last year. Uh, and that was just uh, completed. So we're looking forward to the implementation of the diversity and strategic planning frameworks to see if they can actually transform this institution uh, from what we would call a predominantly white institution to an inclusive institution. In terms of the JSRI, uh, Professor Francisco Villarreal will serve as the interim director uh, moving forward. Uh, the institution that is Michigan State University uh, is setting in motion a nas national search for the next director and that search committee I think is being uh, chaired by the Dean of the College of Social Science. Uh, I'm hoping that in the process that the community and others take a keen interest in the search process and making sure that uh, uh, what I have sought to do which is to uh, embed the work of JSRI within the needs and the, the uh, views and voices of external communities so that they have input in terms of what the work is that is being done and that is aligned with their particular needs. And so um, I don't know where that's going to lead nor who's going to be the next director, but I hope it will be someone who is interested in ensuring that communities have a voice. Well, I sincerely hope that if you do not have a direct role in the, in the search process for the next director, I, I really hope they take into consideration your body of work and the contributions that you've provided through the Julian Samara Research Institute. 
thank you so much for your commitment to the work that you've been doing throughout the majority of your professional career, Ruben. And I want to thank you for joining me today on A Passion to Serve. Thank you, Don. It's been my pleasure, and I appreciate your uh, podcast uh, and keeping all of these issues out in the public. Thank you for listening to A Passion to Serve. You can follow A Passion to Serve on Spotify, where you have access to my interviews from seasons one through three, along with recently published episodes. Until next time.